So this is my next slide. So this is, um, uh, so spraying and press control. Uh, in the winter, I take inventory of what materials I have and plan to order what I may need. I calculate amounts and costs and calendar them, calendar, calendar them as best I can. I consider any changes and improvements for my orchards and consult with advisors about my plan. Who is the guy with my advisor? So you got some problems. You say, well, I, I go talk to these guys. And I attend trade shows and educational seminars like this one. I service and maintain equipment. I have a running list of notes and ideas to plan and consider for my operation. So here's maybe a little bit of my, some of what I do in particular. Um, I may be missing parts of this, but I usually apply a delayed dormant organic 440 oil spray to help control scale, aphids, and mites. Delayed dormant is close to and before the bloom at green tip because the sap is moving into the tree and there is less chance of burning the tree with oil and the insects are more susceptible to control. So as they start to emerge and and they're they're more able you, you, you can get more of them and they seem like their their body bodies are more susceptible to some of these things uh, during popcorn stage or about five percent bloom and full bloom or about 10 days apart i use a small amount of oil about a one percent solution and a bacteria bt or bacillus thuringiensis for ptb or that's peach twig borer this is for prunes now you you'll get OFM, Oriental Fruit Moth, and peaches. So that's another one. And peaches will come bloom at a different time. And, the, and I'll, I'll kind of maybe try to get into some of this. I'm also trying biological materials for blossom brown rot fungus. These are natural components, some of which are fungus, bacteria, and viruses that are detrimental to some pests. So here you can see the names of a few of these and can do your own research to see if they are a fit for you. Some of these are preventative on my part. This does not exclude my longer term plan of soil and plant nutrition and cultural practices to provide a way to take care of and minimize these problems. Certain insects are monitored by trapping during the season to give us an indication of what the populations are, when they are hatching and flying and find out what may be going on in the field with certain pests, more so in our walnuts. But I wanted to bring it up because it is applicable in many crops for many pests. Coddling moth, peach twig borer, oriental fruit moth, navel orange worm, husk fly. I will get into this a bit more later, but it starts in late winter. Um, late winter meaning, so maybe I'll address this first. I'll talk about these other items. But late winter, meaning right about now or early February, we'll start putting these in, in the walnuts. And the primary thing for, in this case, well, it used to be peaches. We would start with, because you're, you're, I'm talking about, so if I talk a little bit about pheromone, if you all kind of acquainted with the pheromone disruption. Yes. So pheromone disruption is something we use. It started back when we started doing peaches back in the early 80s. Uh, we were doing research then. And we were experimenting with uh, uh, oriental fruit moth, which you, the difference between or, on a peach, you get oriental fruit moth, it goes right to the pit. Peach twig borer, they're the one that usually see flags your peach tips, and they'll get it. It's the twig borer. It gets in the twig and it flags, it dies. And, and those will um, um, those will just kind of play around on the outside of the fruit. But they're, they're, they're starting in February. So you're, you're not you're trying to figure out what their cycle is right at the beginning. So with coddling moth, in this picture where I'm, I'm putting up a coddling moth pheromone, similarly, you wanna, we try to find our first catch and that's your biofix. And then from there, you're measuring degree days, uh, over 45 degrees, um, the cycle, they'll, they'll go through a cycle of, of temperature, you measure temperature over 45 degrees and you can measure their next hatch generally when they're going to be hatching. And I've seen that with coddling moth. When the university, we put, they put a, a monitor booth out in our orchard, and we could go out there and just punch for each insect. We could punch their, their little readout on there. It would tell you how many degree days you had at that particular time. You could say, okay, right when I get to about 600, the coddling moths are going to start hatching. 
you could nail almost nail your next spray if you're doing chemi chemical spraying. You could you could you could know when that's going to hatch. Well, in this case, we're at least finding out if we don't put a fair amount amount out early, they're going to already be fertilized. They're going to start their next generation of fertile females, and they're going to start multiplying in the field. So you want to get that fair amount out early before they start mating. And so that's going to happen when they first hatch out of that little uh, hibernacula. And that's the same thing with our, our uh, on our twig bore, what we're doing on prunes. We're doing the same thing at bloom time. So we're at popcorn stage, and at, at 10 days later, we're putting on that BT because that BT is the bacteria that infects that caterpillar, and they come out and start feeding on the leaves at that time, and it's going to affect them, and they're going to die, and it'll, it'll reduce that population throughout the whole season. If you're putting on something like, we can't, you can't use these materials anymore, but that's why the chemical deal it works really well because you can go out here and you say, okay, I've got calling moth, I've got scale, I've got PTB, I've got OFM, and I've got, I'm going to put on one spray early on in the dormancy. I'm going to take those out all right at the beginning. I'm not going to have any trouble the rest of the year. And a lot of times that's maybe safer in some cases because now the, the commercial guys, they have to go in. They don't have these strong materials. So now they're going in and they're spraying here and they're spraying here and they're spraying here. And sp so you're spraying throughout the whole season. So I'm, maybe I'm arguing out of both sides of my mouth here, but but that's what happens, you know. So you now even so you have to control them early to to get and and all these other ones you got now you got each individual thing. So if you're going to put out a pheromone for a, it's all a different pheromone. You got a pheromone for PTB. You got a pheromone for calling moth. You got a pheromone for OFM. Each one has a different application or a different smell, and you got to put all those out instead. So in my case, I'm mainly dealing in my case with PTB. And, and, and since I'm not doing peaches as much, uh, but plums are PTP, and then this is a calling moth. So that would be an apples, but it also gets some walnuts. So I'm hanging this, this tool right here. I hang up early in the season. It's a little aerosol can that's in this little computerized um, thing, and it, you hang it up there, and it'll, it'll puff out a little bit of this pheromone at a prescribed time, at, like at midnight for four hours, I forget what it is, every few minutes and it'll just put a little puff out and it'll shut off in the day and just nighttime it'll go back on and just keep that out there so in the summertime that confuses the mating habits of the calling moth for my walnuts and and so there's 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 multi, there's anyway that's 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 what i'm doing so we put put that up in the tree and it's maybe like um i don't know in a, you know one two per acre or something like that i can't remember exactly what it is so that's just one item on this list here to kind of go into the pheromone confusion thing a little bit. So that's what this trap is. Now my I have an apple tree. I have some apples up near my house, and I'm going to tell you some of the biological side now. Hopefully you'll get, we won't run out of time. But um, the um, this, I you can, in my, I have an apple tree that's way off from my house. And I put one of the, I had a, a PCA said, I'll bring you out a male and female pheromone and a trap. And so I put that in that one tree. And that, they were attracted to it, but they they come in and they get stuck in this the sticky, whatever it is, like those little mouse traps, you know, sticky traps. They the insect gets stuck in there, and typically you'd go in there and you'd count, and you'd 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 put a calendar time on. You count your how you know you can kind of gauge the cycles. In this case, I was just trying to catch them, so they wouldn't go anywhere else, and that's what I did. And, and I didn't get any worms in that tree, so that was a good thing. The ones up by my house, I have a huge amount of bats, and the bats fly at night. And they, they feed on all these various insects. So that's something I'm going to get into a little bit more. In this case, I'll just kind of try to briefly run. Th this isn't everything, but these are different types of things that I've used over, that I didn't used to have available. So a lot of these are essential oils. You've got thyme oil. You've got orange oil. You've got cedar from the cedar tree. You've got, this one has some uh, garlic oil in it. But this also has clove oil. And so these are for different purposes. The PFR97 is a bacteria. You've got to keep it in the refrigerator until you use it. Dipel is a bacteria. Uh, Serenade, I think, is a bacteria. Double nickels like a bacteria. Um, pure crops and oil that, that's a really refined oil that's, um, I don't know if it's refined, but it's gone through some kind of process. This has been really effective. I'm using, so my, I don't use all these all the time, but I've tried different things. Pure crops one probably I'm working toward now. Double nickel for blight. Nordox is a copper. Um, this organic sanitizer I use for disinfecting my packing lines and belts and bathrooms and stuff.
but you can also use this as a disinfectant. You can kill, uh, who was asking about curly leaf? You can kill curly leaf with this, and it's, there's no residue. It's oxygen and hydrogen. It's, the, it's actually um, hydrogen peroxide and, and acetic acid, hydrogen peroxide and vinegar. And it's, uh, so it's, it's, it kills bacteria and fungus. So you can use that just as a killer, but it, it doesn't leave anything. So that, the downside of that is, is you don't have any residual, like a, say if you spray a copper with some kind of a sticker to hold it on the tree, you'll have some, a little more long-term effect of that over time. And so that's, um, and then of course this is uh, my, I talked about the 819, that's a bacillus subtilis. This is seaweed I use in some things. Regalia is an extract of, of some kind of pigweed that's um, used as a fungicide, a fungus, uh, something for brown rot. There's another material I don't have on here. It's called, um, uh, Blossom Protect or something like that. So my PCA, I've got a young guy that's come up through, I don't know, how old Tyson, maybe. Anyway, he's a good advisor. He's, he's learning the organics and he's interested in helping me with all this stuff. So he goes to more seminars than I do. And so he's coming back and say, hey, hey, look at this. What about, so he's, he, brought, he brought this one to me, Time Guard. Hey, have you heard about Time Guard? So this is a new one, you know, because I get thrip in my tomatoes, you know, if you deal with thrip. But thrip, um, thrip has kind of gotten where it's gotten more of a factor. And they also transfer a virus from uh, uh, the, the flowers from outside the field. And they'll, we lost a whole tomato crop one year from a virus. And, and so we started controlling our weeds outside our fields, you know, because it comes in. They, they first come in on a flower. It's a th it's a, they get on uh, garlic and onion, and, and so then they get in your tomatoes, and they suck the juice out of your tomato, and they carry it. They're a vector, so they'll bring the virus into your tomato, and then pretty soon you, get, you, you, we, you know, your plants are declining, and so we had that problem. We, we, got, a, we got ahead of it, which I was pretty, pretty glad we did. But. So anyway, there's a, there's a window of... Uh, conglomeration of things that I've, I've worked with and and I've been pleased with some of the new things that we've come up with to deal with this one here has been helpful for walnut blight and so these two this one this one and this one are probably three things that I've been using for walnut blight and I you know I, I hopefully I get ahead of it sometimes one year I think oh I'm doing something right and next year I'll get hit and I'll think well maybe not um, so, as things wake up and dry out in the spring, I begin chopping brush, mowing down cover crops, applying fertilizers, and plan for my first irrigation timing. The first irrigation sometimes is the most critical depending on weather, and eventually will set the pace in the calendar plus or minus for irrigation. Especially in these drought years, we had to really calculate our water and didn't want to put anything on too early, and so we had to really watch when we're... So this is just a little mower we set up on the front end loader, and it kind of helps keep my berms clean. Uh, it's like a big glorified hydraulic lawnmower and it does a pretty good job and then but initially we chop with a bigger chopper These have some big blades underneath you're probably familiar with those because we don't normally if it's trees down tree will push out But most of our brush we just chop and, and leave in the field um, So with many years on the same soils and testing with instruments like a pressure bomb uh, That's in the photo there you see on the on the left here um <clears throat> that measure exact tree needs and using evapotranspiration rates for plant needs based on weather as well as physical soil testing with tools like this hand auger we've determined generally when to irrigate there is a variance in scheduling water with the water district and there is a range of irrigation timing that is not perfect there are critical intervals for water to avoid fruit cracking and water stress for the tree to have good fruit development in my case, for my area and this crop, having good moisture in the soil at the end of June and July are important. These are important. These are growth stages for this crop. Depending on your system, you can fine-tune your water, tree water needs to very precise timing. You can give. I can give you general information. You will need to do your research, own research, but I believe the information is there. In California, we have evapotranspiration sites that measure water use in real time for grass and then it is converted to a crop or a situation of different types for uh, for for drip irrigation you can manage the crop needs for every day if you if desired and put on timers which is what we do for drip systems 
For more information, there are websites where you can plug in your own data and make calculations based on your situation. This can give information on irrigation and also controlling things with phone apps for timing at your fingertips if you want to get that sophisticated. Fresno State University, right here just a few miles away, has an extensive irrigation research facility, the Center for Irrigation Technology, CIT. If I have used their research and irrigation tool, which uh, is a website, I don't know, they said they're working on it, so I'm not sure if it's available. Water Right, that's, it's in the handout here, I've got the address, waterright.org, and it has been very, very helpful. I put in my data and evapotranspiration station and can get a close idea in real time how much water my crop is using every day or week. It's been especially helpful in my vegetable irrigation. So this just shows you, this is an instrument we use. This guy came out and helped me. He had the tools and we made, it, it pressurizes the leaf in this, in this chamber and it gives you a pressure reading of how, what stress the tree is under and how much that tree is needing water at that time. And you can measure that over time and get to where you need know where to irrigate. This, this little tool here we use so we use both this and this and this. And this, it's, it was funny to me, I, I, you dig up the dirt and they actually have a, if you look it up, they have a, 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 a process you can tell exactly, not exactly, but it gives you a, an idea of, of the thumb test of dirt, how you can read your moisture just on a thumb test. So you dig up the dirt and you thumb test it. And it kind of gives you a, 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 an idea. I never really realized that. I just went out there and did it. You know, and then they have this whole thing that tells you how have different soils and tell you maybe about how much moisture is in there. But in, 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 in this, this deal right here is, is what ATO station. So this measures grass use all over California is, are these stations. So I picked the one nearest to me and then you can go in and like with the water right website from Fresno State, I go in and put my parameters in. You, it, you don't have to do it from their website, but like for my vegetables, I, I, I put in my soil type, my irrigation type, I'm putting in, uh, of course, one factor they didn't have was I'm using plastic mulch, so that changed the dynamics. But you can, and then it, then you read, it gives you real-time use for that crop. You have a crop coefficient, so it, it translates their data to corn or to, to for the grass. It translates to corn or to, to uh, trees or and the stage of growth they're in, and you get real close to what water it's using every day. I could dial in my tomatoes, uh, by for, after a while you get a feel for it where I realized then after a few years I just put on two gallons a day after my tomatoes got to, to a certain height I just set my timer I said okay and then you, I'd set it for two hours a day and we go on it whatever time I programmed it to putting on on an acre that's 12,000 12,000 gallons an acre and so I if I'm doing what how many acres I just say okay there I'll run it that long and I'm giving then I could with the drip tape I could measure exactly two gallons a day and that's, then you read this, this station, it would tell you in past history, it would give you future history, but it also could tell you real time what it's using. And so then you can dial that in real close. For tomatoes, it's pretty, heirloom tomatoes, is, I felt pretty critical because then you could try to mitigate your cracking. We try to reduce our cracking in our tomatoes. And um, so that worked pretty well for that. And so you can use that type of tooling to give your, your water, figure out your water needs. Now. This kind of gets blown out of the water when you when you go to flood irrigation and we just open a valve and we push the water down through the field. It's like, hey, there you go. You know, I can't really measure. I mean, there is a I'm not saying that's totally true, because even even now we have a, 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 a just out of a irrigation valve. They measured how much water based on the height from the canal to the field and the height of that bubble coming out, how much water you're putting on, because there's no we don't have any. Um, we don't have any meters, yeah, of which I'm glad, but you know, it's like, anyway, so um, it's, with my vegetables, I could tell, so I, real time, I could tell. If I'm putting on my water, my vegetables, and I go out in the field in the afternoon and I'm just starting to wilt, I knew I was, I need to bump up my irrigation a little bit. They weren't getting enough. Uh, so this is a little bit about animal pests. Considering animal pests, um, some are gophers and squirrels. That's just a few. These are a few controls I've tried and used. Traps, gopher blaster, cheetah machine. I don't have the gopher blaster in this picture. 
uh, or you, that that gopher blaster is a mix of uh, propane and oxygen injected into the hole, and you ignite it, and it blows up their hole, blows up their run. Um, you've probably seen some of those. We have that tool, and we use it to tell you some stories about that. It's anyway, we don't use it now, but it was pretty violent. Um, yeah, well, my I had a guy at work for me, and he loved to use it. And one time, I was, how far away? We are probably, yeah, and I heard this thing go off, and it rattled us. I thought, whoa, it went kaboom. And I thought, we all ran back to make sure he was okay, but he was having fun. Yeah. The one first time I used it, here's what happened. I had a hole in the ground. We dug a hole. We are putting a post in. It's a pretty big hole. But the gophers, you know how the gophers are. They'll look for any hole they can dump dirt in because they don't want to push it uphill. They just want to dump it. And they started. So there's a hole in the side. And I thought, well, I'm just going to plug it in there. And I plugged it in. I charged it up. And, and I lit it off. And what happened was that, that propane or whatever, had, it was, the hole was deep. And it had sunk down inside that hole. And it blew up. And it kind of startled me because I, I thought it was going to go into the hole. And it went into this big hole. And I lit that whole thing off, and that was, anyway. <laughs> so that's just one of those things. Uh, so a cheetah machine, that's another one that's, or you can use your own motor, lawnmower, lawn manager, or with exhaust pipe attached, uh, poison bait, if you choose to use that. Uh, so there's a bait tool you'll see. Not all these methods are approved by organics, but I'm including it for your information for your home gardener in case you want some alternatives. Uh, flood irrigation for, with my dogs was used for the gophers on the bottom left. Uh, I have more aggressive measures I use at times for squirrels and English sparrows, if you want to ask me about that later. Um, also a tool that with a drill. So if you get a lot of gophers, a lot of conventional guys, will. there's a tool that puts a tube in the ground. Back of your tractor, it's like a planter, but it's, it it's, runs a tube under the ground like the gopher and it runs a tube and it drops a bait in there and the gophers are territorial so they'll come in and look for that hole and they'll find the bait for, for a whole field like you just drive down the middle of the row and just plant bait under the ground so that's conventional site um, so you may be familiar with some of these things the maccabee trap gopher trap if you're not familiar with that that's just a you put that in their run and it actually has a little flap that they push when they come to uh, fill in the hole and it grabs them around the middle kills them um this cheetah machine is actually something I thought about making, and then I saw somebody already made them. It's like a little leaf blower that takes the exhaust and runs it through and pressurize, runs it through the, where the air is, and it pressurizes the hole, so it actually pressurizes the, the gopher hole with carbon monoxide. Uh, this is kind of a little homemade style you could probably do just with a, a metal tubing and doing, doing the same thing. Just This is a light little machine you can move around. Uh, gopher bait, that just has a little little um, reservoir up here of, of bait and it, it has a tube and, it, and you open a little hole once you find their run you could, if you if you use these you can press around the, the hole you can feel where the runs are and it kind of gives a little bit and drop a little bait and so that's that's how that works you know you have a little rod up here that releases the bait down the bottom just in a little tiny pellets and so you can go around and find their holes that way and you just never they just die underground you never see them um, this is a live trap. You probably remember these. There's another squirrel trap that's, that's um, a live trap that's a one-way door. You can catch, uh, it lays low to the ground, about the square. And you can just have a one-way one drawer on both sides. You put bait and the squirrels just go in. And they keep going in. You can catch several squirrels at a time, um, that kind of thing. This is, um, there's a guy asked me earlier here, uh, Greg. He's had a lot of squirrel problems. This death trap is probably one of the most effective ones I've used. And it seems rather fairly specific. I've only caught a skunk in there besides squirrels. And that was a mess. But, um, <laughs> but you know, we have squirrel problems. And one of my fields, we've, we've got about 10 of these traps. And uh, we just set them out, you know, and it, it, whether the squirrel comes is going in or out. It trips that little tongs right there. You have to reset it, of course. And then it'll, it's a body trap. So in... For ground squirrels, not tree squirrels. Yeah, so ground squirrels, and whether they go in or out, it'll catch them, because they trip that trip, whether they're in the hole or coming out, or they're out of the hole and they're going in. And uh, then you just got to go back and check because the other varmints, like coyotes or whatever, come around and pick them up and haul off your traps. 
Same thing with these. You need to nail these down because you've got cats or whatever they'll come in and pretty soon you won't have any traps. So you've got to nail them down. Um, what else on that? Anyway, yeah, this is something Something works really well. I like this really well because it kind of gets them all at once. In the early spring when we flood our fields, we just kind of walk the fields in front of the water and that it drives them out of the ground. We can get them that way. Take my dogs out there with me. Um, so that's a little bit about that. The Yeah, I talked about the gopher blaster, which I don't have a picture of that. Um, so in regard to fertilizers, I prefer a high-quality egg-laying chicken manure, dry or composted as a fertilizer because of the balanced nutrients and high protein content. I get compost from a company called Perfect Blend. Though a compost blend can come with downsides if you're needing more of some individual nutrient and not others because it comes as a package. I have this situation because some of my soils are high in phosphate. Not being tied to an organic market rule in this case may be of benefit because with conventional fertilizers you can often pinpoint your nutrient needs and have a clean material to use as a remedy. I think use well judiciously scientifically this can be a good option. When fertilizing with manures I apply manures using the 90 or 120 day rule before harvest. That's the organic rule. Um, we also use our horse manure and store it in the summer during the no apply months for later applications. That's what I use for my I store it later and I use it for my tree planting operations as my dressing and my prepping in the fall for my trees. I personally am working with the more biological processes in my farming to accomplish my end results. I also have been having some good results using cover crops. Results come at a slower pace with not being able to fix something as quickly. I take soil and leaf samples and use university science research as well. I get Calculations of what I think is needed for the plant and soil needs and with the recommended materials and rates along with my own ideas within my budget I make applications starting in the spring and early summer. Something I find helpful to put micronutrients or smaller amounts of nutrients recommended in this process is apply these as I spread compost. I have found it difficult to apply small rates of recommended minerals so when I am applying my larger bulk materials, I calculate my minerals to be applied and then put them evenly on top of the larger bulk material and it sloughs off in the proper amounts as I'm spreading the compost. So if my spreader rate is 3 ton per acre and I need 20 pounds of boron per acre, I put 20 pounds on top of the compost for each acre I spread rather than trying to make multiple trips spreading small amounts of each thing. My personal, I put this in last night, so this is, I don't see how this, but my personal farming for dummies idea about chicken manure and calcium mineral application. Okay, so, um, so <laughs> in general, I'm building my soil biology and mineral balance and fertilizing for future crops, not necessarily <coughs> crops for that winter, for that year. I have worked toward following William Albrecht, the University of Missouri and Neil Kinsey's agronomy, kinseyag.com, and recently I've been experimenting with some of the processes by a company called Soilworks, Soilworks LLC, and I've got some websites if you want to look up their stuff. He's got some YouTube uh, things, and I've found this rather fascinating. So he's refining the process even further than some of these earlier things I talked about with calciums and microbes in the soil. So he's, I, and I like what he's doing. There are lots of incredible natural biological processes taking place, and this is one of them. So you, you, you may wouldn't recognize this, but this is my walnuts. So here's a line from where the water flowed and where it didn't, this is dry ground. And this is all worm castings. And I'll walk in my, so in my fall when I'm putting, after I have all this cover crop and stuff that's on top of the ground, I've worked it and I've worked it and worked it in the summer, it's down to a dust pulverized because I'm trying I get through walnut harvest by taking all my cover crop down to to pretty much nothing so we can have just a bare floor and then all that dust and organic matter is being taken in by worms so they come up and they feed and as I walk across my ground in the fall after irrigation it just it's crunchy crunch 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 it so all the, that's all worm castings right there it's kind of fascinating um, so as you see those things happening that's pretty Kind of just it's 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 neat to see these things working together. 
So this just kind of describes, like if I'm putting my bulk material and I've got 20 pounds or whatever, you know, if you're putting iron on or some of these recommendations you get, I just spread, put it, I, I pull it all on there together. So if I want to put on 40 pounds of one and 20 pounds of that, I'll just spread it right on top of my spreader. And then as my compost goes on, it just takes it on as I spread it out, same rate per acre, whatever I want to do. This is some gypsum. And then here's one of the, the upsides of having organic stuff is, you know, you get a lot of worms. You want to go fishing. So, so we got some pretty good fishing around our area too. Yeah, so the question is, I'm spreading it between the rows, yes, versus not spreading between the rows? Yes. I mean around the trees? Well, I try to get it tree to tree, but these spreaders sometimes, you know, that's 28 feet, and, uh, you know, it, it'll throw it out there. It doesn't maybe show it in this picture, but it'll, it'll kick it out. The dust is, is, of course, fluffing up in here, but it's kicking it out. You can't see it, maybe not quite as heavy because it does come right out the back the most. But I try to, I try to, if I could, I'd throw it from this side, clear to the middle of the other side. And from this side, clear to the middle. And so, yeah, I mean, that's what I'd try to do, but they're not, they're not just slinging it as far as I'd like. This is 28 feet across here, and so I try to get it out there, but it's not. So in other words, you're, you're fertilizing everything. I try to, yeah, yeah, yeah. The downside of fertilizing my berms is, because I don't get a lot of water up there, so it's not as apt to get taken in as easily that's why you see this if i spread it up here it's not the worms aren't going to get it as easily because the water's not there they don't go up there as much so i don't mind missing a little bit in here and i don't mind missing my berms a little bit because that's where my i don't want my reeds to grow as much either so the roots are all out here they come all the way out i mean you go down and they're just thick in there yeah, you're asking about if it percolates into the ground when I water. Well, yes, and that's the benefit. So, one of the things I didn't mention here that I'm in, in some of my fields, I have a huge population of night crawlers, and the benefit of night crawlers is they come up to the top. They'll I've dug down their holes to try to find them. They'll be sometimes two or three feet deep in the soil, but they come up at night. And they feed out. You watch them. They feed out. You know, they'll stretch out. They leave their tail in the ground. It's kind of wide like a cobra head. And so it holds in them in the soil. So when they reach out, they're just... I, I have some pictures I didn't put in here. They just feed out and they bring all that debris back to their hole. And you'll see it that's just piled up right around them. And then they just start bringing, taking it down in. So they'll clean up. That's the benefit of all those worms and the night crawlers. And that's one of the things in my organic system. I thought, how am I going to do this? I'm putting all this stuff on top of the ground, but I'm, it's not. I'm not tilling it. I'm not get, So this night crawler and the microbial activity. That's what's helping me take all that organic matter and using it back in my cover crop. So this cover crop you see right here, in the after harvest, it's not there. I'm mean, before harvest. I take it down. It's. It looks like. If I can, I'll, I'll make it look like a, 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 a tilled field, but it's all mowed. And I, I set up my mowers where it takes it down to, to nil. And then all that comes back. So this is, this is after a rain, and it's all coming back again. Uh, that's the, the uh, Maybe I'm not getting this. Is my next slide? No. So my cover crops are part of that system that I'm, kinda, that I'm trying to, try to work to, to kind of enhance the biology of the soil. So this is just the summer time uh, mowing, irrigating, more pest control, what I'm doing. July is when I take leaf samples and soil samples to measure plant uptake of nutrients and plan for future plant health. So this is planning ahead for that time I showed you early on for my, for my fall. So I'm trying to figure out not in the fall when I'm doing my, my uh, nutrients, putting stuff on. I'm, trying to, I'm doing that now. I'm saying, okay, I'm pulling my soil samples. This is July and my leaf samples. That's when the most maturity of those leaves is and it shows me what, what I'm, what's going on in the field. The other things is just, of course, we do some field trips. Here's a little girl come out and help. We had the school come out, and they're picking watermelons at my place, and this is my grandson enjoying the water. Um, so that's a little bit. So mowing, cultivation, uh, more mowing and cultivating in the summer. Uh, my cover crop, um, I've just got to figure out if I'm doing okay on time. 11.10, you're fine. Yeah, you go to 11.30. Okay, so... Um, so some of my mowing 
and perennial. So this is some of my mowing and perennial cover crop. Uh, this is an interesting phenomenon of dormant seeds. So I planted dormant seed, and I had planted an orchard of prunes in 1990, and I planted a cover crop in there. And after 25 years of, I pulled that tree out, orchard out, after it took, you know, Bermuda grass took over after a while in that field. And so, and I took the prunes out of, say, about 20 years later, and then I planted vegetables for about five years, and then I went back to prunes, and this cover crop came back up. So all this seed had laid dormant from that early cover crop years, and it came back on its own, and it just came back solid when the conditions were right, and I had my, my new orchard in, it sprouted new clover, and it just covered that whole field with brand new, this is perennial clover. Now my walnuts, I use an annual clover, because I want it to go to seed and I want it to die and reseed itself. So I wait, my walnuts, I let them grow. Walnuts look pretty rank and nasty in the spring because I let them go to seed. And then that cover crop goes to seed. This perennials like New Zealand and strawberry and whatever types of clover, it just stays there. And so my prunes, I don't care because I'm picking those uh, off the tree, not on the ground. Um, so this is a picture of some irrigation. So we typically um, just open a gate on the canal and it bubbles out into our field. We, we open a valve here and it just, it floods down through the field like alfalfa. In this case, this is one of our, that grass hay we planted. So we just ran up, pumped it out. We ran into a gated pipe. And this is that laser leveled field. So you can see the water runs nice and smooth and level. And so we just run the water down. This is sprouting this uh, grass hay. So we were just sprouting the grass getting the hay to grow. Sometimes we use siphons to siphon across a ditch. Um, <clears throat> so this last year we were cut 50% on water in California. And so we had to get creative and we actually started pumping water and moving. We had to move sprinkler pipes down every row and these my grandkids came to help me and they got paid to move pipes so that they made some money on this deal. And uh, that was kind of good, good for them but it was kind of a tough. So irrigation, um, I know I went through this very, a little bit already. It's very critical. Even though I can't plan this perfectly with the water district, it's something I work on pretty, pretty thoroughly to get my water right. Um, so in this case, we, we ran uh, pumped and uh, ran sprinklers, which normally we just flood this. Like that last slide, we just open the gates and let the water run through the field right down through here. This year we had to move pipe and move pipe and move pipe and move pipe. Um, so some more pests. Aphid is one among others. Some of these pet problems don't show up every year. In this case, the problem with spraying an oil or something like that on these at this point is you must hit them to kill them. You can see I sprayed these and it hit them, killed them. This is the same leaf. But the problem is sometimes they'll be up curled over and you can't get them. So um, you might get some of them. It might slow them down and allow the beneficial insects to take time to catch up. And th though, through, see, though newer biologicals, like the ones I talked about, may be helpful in a different way to control these, I've worked with some of these and have mixed results. So best of all, I like beneficials because they go where the bugs are. And in this biological process, I'm seeing much more of this take, taking place. And I'm not always intervening, but watching and observing and allowing them to do what they can. I, to take more aggressive measures, to take more aggressive best timing control, I'm going back to my dormant spray timing to understand if I can do something to solve this better at another time. And then going farther than that and reviewing my fertilizer or cultural practices to see if I have a cause there. Because sometimes my imbalance of fertilizers can cause these other problems. In using dormant oil, this is one of the questions I'm asking. In using dormant oil, do my rates or timing need to be adjusted? Did I change something from before? Are my fertilizer rates and plan correct? It may have been just the right conditions for one particular year. And one way I've seen this, if the problems I have are widespread and many other growers in the valley, which is in the case of 2018, they had the aphid problems also that year. The other years, this was a smaller occurrence. So the next year's gave me more indication of what was going on. So now it's 2022. I did as above, reviewed my timing and applications, readjusted back to what was effective before 
and so far since 2018 I have not had the same problem with aphid. I still wonder, is it what I do or certain conditions that make the problem show up? So everybody else was having this trouble, but this was a bad problem this year. I, I tried to do everything I could to control these things, and it seems like they still gave me headaches. So this is a mealy plum aphid. It'll do pretty big damage to the plum tree. There's another one I don't worry about so much. It's called a leaf leaf curl aphid or something. And and so these are, if you don't know what these, these are ladybug eggs. Right here you can see ladybug eggs and the larva. So that you can see where they cleaned up this leaf already. So these are good workers. I mean, they do a lot of work and they and they go, and there's other ones too. So these lace wings, they're, they're really helpful. And the, the, here's, you don't, maybe can't see this very well, but right here, this is a parasitized um, aphid. And there's a wasp that comes in and stings those, lays their eggs, and will parasitize those aphids. And they, they've done, they've cleaned up a lot of problems for me. And I'm kind of getting into that a little bit more as I move along here. Um, Yeah, so they they're little tiny cells on that. It looks like one one spot in there, but I don't know if you can see that or not. It, here's another one right here. So they're they're all stacked up in little pillars, and that's uh, those are ladybug eggs. And so they, this and they kill your aphids. Yeah, they'll the the adults and the and the and the larvae will feed on aphid, and they do quite a bit. Of, so here's a trichogramma wasp. So these are some things that that help us. Um, trichogramma. This is a really small. So you see, that's the aphid. And it's it's laying its egg or stinging it, and these are used as a host to host to raise your young. And these are all mummified, so it killed them all. And then of course you you got the same thing here. And ladybugs, uh, well here I'll talk about lacewing first. So this is a lacewing, and this is how they lay their their eggs. They put them on a little web, it stands off the plant, and that's to help from getting cannibalized and also from predators. And so you can see those. You'll see those just stacked up on your on your 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 uh, plants. And so we, we see natural populations of these now. We, don't, we used to plant these. We used to plant these. And um, now sometimes we'd go up to the mountains and go camping, and you could find these in swarms. And so we'd go up the night, day before, find the swarms, take ice chests, go up and harvest the ladybugs, put them in the ice chests, bring them back into the valley. We'd put them in our cooler, our big cooler, till nighttime, and I would take... Um, like a sugar water, and and uh, or um, or maybe even like a Seven Up or soda pop, and spray it on their wings. Put it in a bottle and spray. It. Try to stick their wings to their body so they wouldn't take off right away. Put them in the trees at night so they crawl the trees and stay there and try to get them to cycle again and stay in the valley because they'll go up like this. This is what they look like in the mountains, just big swarms in the in the leaves. You just pick them up in in piles. You just pick them up with your hands. Of course, you wait too late in the day, they start to fly and crawl and they bite. And so they can hurt you, you know. You, so anyway, we try to get up early in the morning, go camping the first day, go up early in the morning, and then harvest and bring them back. And um, so that's that's one one some of the beneficials. Now here's some more. Um, so these are all the other ones that are helping me and helping all the way. Did I did I did you see see you didn't see the lizards? Did I talk about the lizards? Oh, here's one I missed. So here's um, this is this was in my greenhouse garden. I've never seen one this big. This is a, a California garter snake. It's huge. And so it's hiding in my beets. And I just left them in there. But, you know, those are, those are feeding on things as well. Maybe not the ones I'm particularly. They're feeding on frogs, too, and toads. I, I like them to eat that. But I figure they're beneficial. And the lizards are my daytime ground feeders. These eat a lot of bugs. There's huge populations. Yellow jackets. They feed forage for worms in my tomatoes and all kinds of things. So... A lot of times you don't like these, but they're foragers for insects. They're good beneficials. This is a this is a group of swallows that comes in every year. We've this has been my lifetime here. Swallows come in, they nest underneath the bridge, and so this is. I'll show you this uh, picture here. Where is it? Does it show? Where's my? How come it's not coming up? I thought I had a video that turned on here. That's weird. This thing frees up on me. Here they are. So you see them flying? So they're just out feeding. And those are my day feeders. They're feeding on insects during the day. 
and then these are some other ones I explained already. And here's my night feeders. We put up these bat houses. These will hold uh, maybe 600 to 1,200 bats. And, and then, of course, places you don't want them, they're there too, the bats are. But they feed on insects at night, and we get these big swarms that feed, and that's where it helps, I think, control my calling moth. And, uh, of course, we have owls. We put up owl boxes. I don't know how good they do, but we, we put them up anyway, and there's, they feed at you know, nighttime. And uh, my grandson here with some worms. Toads. So toads, they feed a lot. You would be surprised. So this is a toad turd. And these are smaller toad turds. And these are lizard turds. So all the lizards have this little white spot on them. And these are bats. So, and I, you, you walk out, you think, well, what are these big old turds out here? You, you, so you break them open, and they're just full of bugs. So they're feeding, this is a toad, feeding at night. You think, well, that couldn't come out of a toad. But sure enough, it's about as big as your little finger. You think, wow. But they're feeding at nighttime. The lizards are feeding at day. And then one night I was out irrigating, and I'd never seen this before. It just was a new thing to me. I saw all this, by, since I used a headlamp, I, was, I went out and, and there's glitter all over the ground, just glitter. I thought, what, I thought it was, first of all, I thought it was slug slime. You know how slugs make a trail? But I, I went down closer and it was spiders. Hundreds and hundreds of spiders. And their eyes were glinting back, reflecting back. And it was just like, I went to another field, same thing. And so these are natural spiders. If you were in a, or a conventional system using a pyrethroid or a sauna or something like that, these would kill these things, wipe them out. And so you would never have those, and you wouldn't see. And they also kill these, and frogs. So you wouldn't have any of that benefit in your system outside of the organic system. So, and then some of the problems, more pests. These are just examples of some things to be aware of, and contend with on prune trees. I've had fewer problems with these as the years go by. I have, I have already covered some of these things. I do to prevent these biological and soil practices. We talked about some of the soil stuff I do and some of the biologicals. This is the brown rot I was telling you about earlier. So these, it almost looks like in some springs, if you get a bad case of this, it looks like somebody took a torch out there and burned your blossoms. This starts at bloom time. As soon as the tissue starts to come out of the tree is when we start working with that, trying to control that material, control that fungus. And this will happen, at, this is too late, be on your fruit. Uh, twig borer, you see those, that gets in the twig. We talked about using BTs for those um, to control that on peaches and, and plums. <coughs> this is your mite, your spider mites, with their eggs and the little tiny spiders. These are real tiny. This is what they are. Look like on, this is some of the damage they'll do. They'll create a web and they'll, they'll we've had this in eggplant, huge amount in eggplant. The way we dealt with eggplant, because we, didn't, we didn't, couldn't get a spray to, we're picking a lot of eggplant. We did a lot of eggplant one year, several years. We would just sprinkle irrigate. We'd set up our, our sprinklers out there, and the change of environment tended to, to change the habitat of what the spider mites, they didn't like the humidity and the, and the moisture. And then we would, we would cut, I'm kind of getting off topic, we'd cut the eggplant off. After we had our first crop, you could produce two crops in a summer with eggplant. We'd cut them down about that high after we picked our first, and that would rebloom, produce another crop, and the second crop didn't have mites. Go figure. I don't know. Somehow the later... And here's another fungus that gets on the, on the um, main scaffolding. They're doing research on, tr try to figure out what to do with this. Um, so this is some of my uh, walnut, uh, about walnuts. So other pests includes walnut blight, walnut scale, calling moth, navel orange worm, husfly, aphids, mites, and crown gall. For weed control methods, I use mowing and burning of weeds. Animal pests are gophers, ground squirrels. Blue jays, I'm not very tolerant of various varmints that destroy my crops. As I showed in a previous slide, besides as I showed in a previous slide, besides good soil management for pest control, one of the first needs is, is to control bacterial blight. And control starts at the prayer stage. Now that sounds a little funny, but uh, this is really what they call it, the prayer stage. And so right here, when the, the shoots emerge, they look like praying hands. You can find all the dynamics and scary stuff about walnut blight on a web search. Essentially, copper and various other things are recommended to control blights. I currently use various types of controls such as double nickel, Nordox, uh, 750WG, Serenade, Regalia, applying spray beginning at the prayer stage if needed. And like with the prunes, it's at the early bloom time. 
Crown gall is another bacterial infection that causes gall on the crown of the tree, which causes weakness and possibly kills it. So you don't see this on the gall. I just because normally it's down here and it's hard to control. It gets on the gall. It's a soil. It kind of gets infected from the soil. This is in my field. I didn't take care of this early, and it's actually going to destroy the tree. I've got, taken some new shoots off the bottom that I'm going to regraft, and then I'll just cut this off. But typically, if you see a small, this is an air gall. This got in there probably when it got grafted. Either the knife got put on the ground or the cyan wood got put on the ground, and it picked up the bacteria, and it got into the graft union. And a lot of times, you'll just see it show up as from planting time the tree will get wounded and that bacteria will get in here create a big old pretty soon it looks like a big old black burl right around here and it'll take over the tree what we do is we cut that off we cut it with a chisel or a uh, you know a hammer and a chisel and get it clear back to clean bark burn it with a burner I take a little propane burner I just burn all the way around that cut and I'll spray a little alcohol on there and then it, this is typically what it, once you get all the gall it'll heal over and pretty soon that'll close up and be close be that wound will close back up again so that's something you gotta and some of these new rootstocks i kind of get into the other session there that helps prevent their developing helps is more resistance to crown gall so this just gives you a little overview of that um i monitor for walnut scale with a two-sided sticky tape wrapped around the trunks to catch the scale crawlers as they emerge i then spray a light oil currently pure crop because your other oils, like my 440, um, is t it can be can burn the leaves on walnuts. It's it's walnuts are more susceptible. So this pure crop oil doesn't burn the leaves, and it works pretty well for for uh, for the uh, scale. So I spray that about three times at, at one week intervals. If I can, if I can, I will combine my blight spray with my blight spray. I have a local farm service PCA monitor with sticky traps and pheromone attractants to measure insect pressure for calling moth, navel orange worm, and husfly. I monitor for aphids and mites by walking the field and looking for infestations. For calling moth, I'm using the, the calling moth pheromone puffer to prevent infestation, and for navel orange worm, my main defense is crop sanitation. So we talked about the calling moth puffer. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, uh, what the, the, the blight and this scale here is a little insect you probably familiar with. There's all kinds of scale. This one is walnut scale, and it, it high, it, it's underneath the lizard, little tiny things about the size of a pinhead. They have a little capsule over the top of them. That's why you call them scale. This is uncovered scale. Pull the, pull the top off of them. And these things walk around at certain times, and they get stuck in this tape. That's when we know they're moving, and that's when they're most susceptible for control. And that's usually in May in our area. So we start. We try to control them in May. Um, let's see. Um, Husfly. We put up a trap, little, a little uh, yellow sticky trap, and they stick to that. And then we use a bacteria. It's come from the soil, but it's been colonized and used as a biopesticide. It's called Intrust, and we mix that with a molasses, and it's the fly is attracted to the bait, and they feed on the bacteria, and it kills the fly. So that's that's kind of that, and we we've been that's how we try to control the navel orange, the husfly. That's husfly. So this is what husfly does, and that's what you were talking about. They would get into your, and this is the, what it looks like. So then then we have the scale, and we got the navel orange worm. So navel orange worm is another one that gets in the walnuts and almonds. Um, so I usually the only thing I I can do about that in the organic system is try to get rid of all the walnuts that are left over after harvest no real good sanitation so i take a uh, i pick everything i can i take a big water-filled roller and i'll run up through my field and i'll try to smash all the walnuts that are left in the field or mow them if i can't mow them because of my cover crop so i, I just try to roll them down and crack them so then they'll break down the, and the worms won't stay in the walnuts so that's kind of my main and we try to just clean them up pick everything we can and get everything out of the field and because they'll 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 hibernate in there they'll reinfect they come out next year, and they, then you got another bigger problem. And the more you have, the more you get. You know, so calling moth, we kind of talked about that already, the pheromone thing. Um, so let me just, this is uh, it's not going to stop. So I'll tell you about this first. So this is how we harvest. So we're, we run a harvester, runs on both sides of the, of the tree, and our shaker, this is shaker side. It reaches out and grabs the tree, shakes it, 
and then the, this is the receiver side so uh, the fruit rolls down to this side and then uh, this long pan will lift and dump the fruit on the conveyor and then it runs it back up through the fan and blows the leaves out sometimes we put a fruit sizer drop the small fruit out and then we just go from tree to tree uh, shaking the fruit off uh, this kind of shows you how it works these are offset weights on a shaft that hydraulically driven and it just kind of oscillates the tree and then it's on a pad with a sling so it doesn't skin the tree and then we just run through the orchard like this we have another machine that comes behind and distributes the bins and picks them up it holds about six or seven bins it's called a bin carrier obviously and um, so we take them out from the field uh, to the roadside and so but this just shows you that we we sugar test um, so we try to pick our fruit 25 percent or above sugar you know in terms of bricks and i've seen everywhere from 18 to 30 um, as far as sugar content so if, you, if the pressure gets too low at harvest time there's no no reason to wait to pick because it's all going to start dropping on the ground so once it gets a th uh, below a three psi uh, flesh pressure there's no reason to wait to try to see if the sugar will come up anymore if it's high pressure we might wait longer to see if the sugar content will come up more but um, sometimes the aspect is the dryer the dryer space so since all commercial dryers uh, we have to find a place in the dryer to get to dry them so we can't just say well we're going to pick at the perfect time we sometimes pick when the dryer schedules us as close as we can to harvest and so that's part of the deal so to talk a little bit more about uh, uh, we're out of time here so um, anyway this is harvest after harvest uh, so we dry them on these trays it goes in the dryer they put them in tunnels and they dry in about 18 hours they come out looking like this they come down from a three to one dry away so in terms of weight um, so the dry green weight might be you know three pounds we come out with one pound of prunes and of course just to load them on trucks and we then then we grade them by size every fruit gets graded by size so everywhere from say a hundred count to a 25 count per pound we run them across a long grid and it drops the fruit through holes and then they fall into the bins Let's see this is a 42 45 so the 42 to 45 prunes per pound in this bin that way when we take them to the pitter the pitter has all uniform size that they can put in the pitting chuck and it fits in perfectly and they shove the pit out if you had all sizes they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't do it with all the different sizes so and then we can grade them based on what we can pit and what goes for juice and what goes for cattle food and feed to because if they're too small they're just skin and pit and they're no good for eating uh, for people so that's kind of the process of doing that it's you know more involved than just a few words here but uh, we're running out of time so um, I have some I have some samples to give out I've got some whole the hole with the seeds in them and I've got pitted and I've got some walnuts so maybe sit, let's sit over here and I'll, I'll just uh, I got a few more slides and then then you can take and I've got handouts and you can take some samples of our our, our pitted prunes and our walnuts and our whole prunes so they're kind of separated in there I think the walnuts in the middle and the, the whole prunes the whole prunes are our best fruit because they're the biggest we can't pit them but they they sell cheaper because they go for juice so I like them as a dried product you stew them up they kind of make a nice flavor because the pit kind of melts it kind of gets the flavor into the into the fruit and my wife likes them just like this I like them stewed but you know so then the next slide is what back again starting over again so let me go to our last slide uh, so to conclude in the spiritual realm it is said behold the Lamb of God to have a pattern to follow and develop into a Christ-like person Similarly, having a goal or picture of making a tree or orchard requires a vision or pattern to follow as well. I say this because it helps to see ahead of time what you want to accomplish. What do you want your orchard to be and look like? What is the result you want and to keep that in mind? You may be thinking about growing and developing an orchard. And one of the thoughts I've had in this, that in this process, God may be thinking, hmm, a way to develop this person. I say this not because I totally understand it, but because I think it is true. In this process, we day-to-day -day get to look at God's creative power and participate in it, and He with us. Some of the words I read to think about a few things, 
God has in mind for us in the new earth and to give us something to look forward to is this quote in Isaiah. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.